Good evening, everyone. It's time for Necromaniacs. This week, it's myself, Mike Hill, and my good friend, Mike Scandato. How's it going, Mike? How are you, Mr. Hill? What is up, everybody? It is good to be back. Necromaniacs uh, Weekly coming at you. want to say hello to all the listeners and all the loyal devotees. Uh, we're in the month of June. And uh, it's getting a little hot out, Mike. What do you say? Boy, is it ever getting hot. And I'm feeling every BTU of heat because (laughs) my AC is out, man. My central AC is out. Hopefully, uh, the part has been ordered. So hopefully, they fix the problem in in the next couple of days uh, before I waste away, man. It's been uh, real brutal here in this heat wave. Yeah, I mean, usually in June, it kind of eases into it a little more in the New York, New Jersey area, but it was just like wham over the past uh, weekend, and yep, it's hot. Yeah. But I like the heat. I'm, I'm a summer baby, so I was born in the summer. I like the heat. Uh, this this is this is my time of year. But uh, aside from that, on, on the good news front, um, just wanted to, to throw out there uh, my band, the Last Stand finally has some new music out for the first time in four years, Mike. Been a minute. Four years. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, we work a little slow in the Last Stand camp, but I think it's it's going to be worth it. We have a new uh, split uh, EP release uh, with some friends of ours, a band out of the West Coast called One Choice. Uh, the name of the EP is called From the East Coast to the West Coast. A little nod to both Warzone, Agnostic Front there. Uh, we have a first song up called Slip Through My Hands, and you can find it, dear listeners, uh, at irishvoodoorecords.bandcamp.com. Uh, I dig the song. It's it's a short and sweet hardcore number, I'll say. It. One minute, 50 seconds, Mike. Short and sweet gets in and out. Oh, yeah, in and out. But uh, the whole EP comes out on Friday july 23rd but for now you can hear this uh this track slip through my hands i'm stoked on it and then we got uh next week we have another new song out on the a7 back to the new york hardcore roots compilation which is uh going to be on vinyl and digital um you know i'm stoked on that too i can't wait for people to hear that song that song is called i can't look back so some Nice music news to report on after, you know, a, a lot of like nothingness, you could say. <laughs> 2020, obviously. So, yeah, kicking it into gear in 2021. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. I'm excited to check all that stuff out. Thank you so much, man. And a quick uh, plug for our buddies at Break the Apocalypse podcast who uh, continue to promote us. And we will continue to promote them. Thank you so much for all you've done for us. And yeah, if you like comedy, a little offbeat commentary on this crazy world of ours, check out Break the Apocalypse. I'd like to give a quick plug, too, uh, to our brother-in-arms, Brandon Legion. Yes. I, uh, I was a guest on his podcast. Uh, well, by the time this show comes out, it will have been a couple of weeks ago. So mm-hmm. uh, if you did not listen to my appearance on his fine podcast the horror wolf 666 head on over and check out uh what we talked about we um we kind of went 
back and forth between uh, our favorite werewolf movies. Uh, and of course, there's the usual tangents into other stuff. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Brandon's, uh, of course, he was a, a guest on this show uh, a little while back. And he's yeah. a solid guy, uh, a horror lover just like us. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, definitely go and check it out, man. Yes, Brandon is good people. But uh, aside from that, Mike, you know, as, as we like to do here on the Necromaniacs podcast, folks, uh, we like to kind of kick off the show with a little bit of a rundown on what we've been either reading or, or listening to or checking out aside from our feature film. So uh, what, have you been, what have you been checking out, Mike? Actually, you know what? There's a, a docuseries on HBO that's it's not really a horror. Actually, it's not horror at all. It's more like a true crime. But it's uh -huh. called The Vow. Okay. It's about the Nixium sex cult. Mike, I actually watched a, the first two or three, and then some life stuff happened, and I didn't finish it. I need to finish that. I liked it. I banged out, like, I don't know, like three or four episodes yesterday, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm all in on that, man. It is interesting, huh? Yeah. 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 Um, and it has that... That angle with the actress chick who was on Smallville, which which makes it, uh, I mean, it just touches touches some interesting bases there in the mainstream world, huh? There's there's also some familiar faces from the uh, Battlestar Galactica series too that are part yes, of it. Right? Wow, man. Yeah. Sex cults. Ever notice the heads of cults and sex cults are like marginally like attractive they're not even like hot dudes ever notice that like they're like these like schlubby dudes ever yeah. notice that well that's that's keith ranieri the guy who's the uh <laughs> the head of this sex cult he looks like he works in like uh like fucking guitar center or something like that you know what, what I mean? the hell man i mean i i guess i guess personality goes a very long way huh hmm. spoilers <laughs> ranieri is actually locked up in brooklyn Oh, that's right. Yeah. I know. Um, is it in, is it, wait, is it in the federal prison? The one off the highway over there? I think so. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, no naming names, but I had a roommate once who uh, did some fed time and, uh, he always told me, he goes, you know, think of me when you're driving off, you know, this, the highway near Sunset Park over there. Oh man. <laughs> oh wow. So that's where he is. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's uh, I mean, it's not, I'm not surprised that it was federal because there was a lot of stuff going on between different states and actually uh, Canada, like Vancouver, like mm. inter international shit, you know, so he, he fucked up, you know, and it's and like, it, involved, uh, it involved money, too. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 All kinds of okay, shit. Man. Yeah. That makes sense. then. OK, yeah. because they don't you know, they they chuck the regular kind of, you know, miscreants in different places in like the regular kind of jail so to speak you know yeah this guy's uh, a criminal man like he's yeah, he's like yeah. locked up for sure yeah oh wow but no i need to finish that um something i watched on on hbo that is not horror at all but it has a mild thriller aspect and it was fucking great was mayor of east town did you watch that you know what man i i have that in my like list of things to watch and I'm, I might actually start it tonight. I was thinking about checking that out this week. It's probably like the best thing HBO has done 
in a minute as far as like, you know, when they do their kind of yearly marquee miniseries kind of deals. Yeah. This is one of the best ones they've done in a couple of years, in my opinion. This is really good, actually. Um, and amazing acting. It's just, I don't know, super solid. I think you'll dig it. Check it out. And for the listeners, check it out. I, I think a lot of listeners might have even seen it. It's pretty pretty popular. Yeah, yeah people talk about it for sure. And then uh, Saturday night, I actually, uh, this is a horror, borderline horror, but definitely horror adjacent by one of my favorite filmmakers, David Lynch. And uh, mm. I watched Lost Highway for like, I don't know, the 50th time maybe. <laughs> and um, probably my favorite film by him. Of his or like one of your all-time favorites? Well, definitely my favorite Lynch film, but it's definitely in my top 10, I think. That movie, I just love that movie. I like it too. Uh, I have a great memory of in the summer of 97, like watching it. When uh, Inhuman and All Out War did a, a, a run, uh, a mini run across the, the USA, and we stayed at a guy from Victory Records' house, and he had it on VHS, and I remember watching it at his house, and I have this great memory of that. Isn't that interesting? Like the whole band was like, like watching it at his house. Kind of cool. Yeah, I remember um, that summer of 97 too, man, and that's when I think I, I really got obsessed with this movie. Um you know? Yeah, it was like a turning point for me. Like, and I fucking love that soundtrack. I was still in college at that point. I took my time in college. Uh, let's just say a lot of a lot of like part time semesters. So I was still in college, and I was a college uh, radio DJ, and I was playing the shit out of that soundtrack a lot. You know, and like you know, Perfect Drug and all the other cool songs on there, and the you know, just really fucking cool music on that soundtrack. Yeah, I was I was working at the Newberry Comics warehouse, and um, mm. you know I lived in Boston at the time, and uh, that was just like a wild summer for me too, man. And and um, that movie was part of that experience, and uh, you know just a lot of a lot of nostalgic memories, of just being like you know a guy in his twenties and yeah, and man, going through all that too. shit, you know. And uh, yeah, it's a great movie, man. Got a uh, probably the hottest appearance of Patricia Arquette. She plays a blind, uh, totally, a totally, blind yeah. and a brunette. <laughs> I, she looks even better there than she does in, in True Romance. I love her in True Romance. Yeah, but she looks smoking hot. I yeah. agree. Stunning. Stunning. No, very stunning. Yeah. Um, I did something real cool over the weekend. I was uh, visiting a friend in, in Poughkeepsie, and uh, we went to a drive-in at wow. Hyde Park. The Overlook Drive-In, and it was a double feature of The New Conjuring and Caddyshack. Nice. Ten bucks a pop. Pretty cool, huh? You know, I, I should fucking do something like that on one of these weekends. You know what I mean? Well, this place is, is definitely worth checking out. Hyde Park, The Overlook Drive-In. I felt like I was in the goddamn Outsiders. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I felt yeah. like it was like, it was just like, it was such a weird throwback. But... We got there late, okay? So we missed some of uh, the new Conjuring. But it's on HBO Max, so I'm going to revisit it anyway, right? Um, I kind of like those movies. I, I rewatched the first one and realized I do like the first one quite a bit, and I like the second one, too. Uh, haven't seen any of those Annabelle ones, by the way. Um, but something happened 
after uh, Conjuring 3 was over. Oh, about 70% of the cars left before Caddyshack. No. Yeah. What? And I'm, I, I was talking to uh, my friend, and I go, you know what? I, I, initially, I'm kind of like shocked. I'm like, I can't believe people don't want to see a movie like this in a drive-in. And then it dawned on me, and here's the, here's the nuclear bomb. The movie's 41 years old. Wow. So it's kind of like if we were in our 20s, right, or maybe even 30s, and going to see a new horror movie, and we were told that a comedy from 40 years prior is playing, would we stick around? And if, if we're in our 20s, all right, say we're in our 20s, right, it would be the equivalent of sticking around for a 50s movie. Um. That's a great point, but there are mm-hmm. quite a few movies that I, I I like from that era. You know what I mean? Right. But like, if it was something really cool, like the thing is this though. Here's what what negates that a little bit. Okay, is that it's Caddyshack, and that Caddyshack is a pretty known movie. Like, and it has like lines in the lexicon and golf and like major marquee comedic actors in it. You know what I'm saying? So it's not. It's not a typical 41-year-old movie, but I I have to say there probably is quite the disconnect between the average 20-something and how much they are down with Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and Rodney Dangerfield. You know? Yeah, you know, it's conceivable that a lot of younger people might think that Chevy, uh, not Chevy Chase, that uh, Bill Murray is actually a dramatic actor. <laughs> right? You know what exactly. I mean? Because he's really been primarily focusing on drama or that he's just this weird quirky old guy i like i mean not look we know all about saturday Night live and we know all about the early 80s comedies and this and that because of our age right yeah, yeah. but if you're a conjuring three 25 year old 23 year old you're not you're not that person you're not all psyched to see caddyshack and it's a bit sobering, but it, I think it's true. <laughs> That's fucking interesting, man. I um, I, I would have paired that movie up with something else, maybe another horror film. You know, yeah, way... we like mm-hmm, we were like it, it's a weird pairing, but it's but it's fun as hell. Um, honestly, I was more psyched about just seeing Caddyshack in a damn drive-in, to be honest. You know, uh, I, I'm going to make a bold <laughs> statement that I don't think. I think humor doesn't age as well as some of the crime and horror films from that era. Right. If you threw Conjuring 3 and 1981, I don't know, Friday the 13th Part 2 or Halloween 2, yeah, nobody would have left. So I think, yes. You know? Yeah. But... I was like, where are these people going? <laughs> Before I thought it out. And I'm like, hmm, I think I'm going to answer my own question as to why some people might have left. So this this is the Overlook Drive-In in Poughkeepsie. Yeah, in uh, Hyde Park, New York. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's not too far from where our parents live. Oh, yeah, dude. Very worth checking it out. I mean, they have like the old school concession stand. Like everything looks so old school and awesome. I was like, wow, this is so great. 
you know, you know uh, not not for nothing. Uh, I know uh, uh, um, a nice uh, lady that lives not too far from there too. So maybe I'll ask her to go to the movies with me. Oh, very cool. Go for it. Yeah. Go for it. Um, but yeah, I definitely will be back there. Uh, and uh, you know, I wish there was some kind of drive-in thing going on in, in, in Brooklyn. Obviously, I don't think there is. If there is someone, please let me know. I, I just feel like there isn't just because. But uh, I think they do these real mainstream ones in certain parts of Brooklyn, but definitely nothing as cool as like Caddyshack. <laughs> well, I, I got some intel from uh, Drew Murphy, my bass player, mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, born and raised New Jersey guy. And right. there are some cool drive-ins in New Jersey that do interesting films like that. And uh, oh. I'll grab some intel on that. And and I know that, um, you know, the, actually the drive-in, the very first drive-in was, uh, was in New Jersey. Wow, that's yeah. great, man. I mean, I know that there's one, might be Jersey, that, that does Jaws every summer, which is probably one of the greatest movies to see in a drive-in in the summertime, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> But uh, yeah, such such is our little listeners. Um, you know, I feel like not everybody is down with you know Chevy, Rodney, and Bill Murray, but you should be. Damn it! Real quick, and uh, the War of the Worlds season two has started, and uh, <laughs> I haven't watched the first episode of season two yet, but I was really looking forward to that, so I'm excited about that returning. What is that airing on? Epics. Oh, yeah, I don't have Epics. I yeah. do not have. Well, if I were you, I would, uh, I would get it for a month and um, uh, watch mm. the first season, and then you know, you know, I, that's what I do. Like I'll, I'll subscribe to these services for a period of time, and then just put it on hold if I don't, if I'm not interested in it. Yeah, I'm about to do that with Peacock, which I got for the uh, I forget which I forget which serial killer I got it for, but I got it oh, for the uh, for the Gacy series, and I realized I have not really watched it much since, so I might swap it out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple things on Epics that are good. And uh, speaking of serial killers, I watched the rewatched the Ted Bundy early O's Ted Bundy movie from like 2002, 2003. That's a pretty sick one. It has a, a nice appearance uh, from the, the lovely Tiffany Shepis in it, who plays the the girl who got away from uh, Bundy, actually. Oh. Yes, yes. It was a, it was a real uh, girl who, who escaped his clutches in like a shopping mall. She, she plays that role. Uh, pretty sick movie. I remember I saw that with an old girlfriend back in like 2003 in the theater. Yeah, actually, I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think trying to remember what what streaming service it's on when you have 47 streaming services they you know they start to blur mike that's exactly that's right. it's hard they, to they tell. Really but uh aside from that i you know uh, musically I, I, there's been something very shocking that i've been checking out and it's just really good and some may judge me but the new band featuring tracy guns and Michael Sweet of Striper called Sunbomb. Huh. They have an album out called Evil and Divine, and it is really good. I can't believe how good it is, actually. Huh, okay. They have got some riffs on this record, Mike. 
I always was an LA Guns fan, and Tracy Guns can write some fucking riffs. And he put some real good ones to this project with uh, Michael Sweet from Striper, and it's called Sun Bomb. And I have to say, it's fucking really good. I I, lo- I, I like the first two Tracy um, LA Guns records, so I'm, I'm a fan of Tracy Guns. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I can't say I, I'm a Striper fan, but I'll I'll definitely check this out if it's got Tracy Guns on it. Yes, you, you'll. I mean. Sometimes, like Michael Sweet, kind of oversings some of the stuff, and he does a lot of these like really old school, like heavy metal screams. And but I think that's kind of what the project is calling for. But man, there are some hooks and there's some great, you know, verses and just catchy, catchy material here. Like stuff that I'm like, wow, he. I'm surprised he didn't put this on a new LA Guns kind of <laughs> like you know, uh, material thing. I'm gonna say something very unpopular right now, but uh, I mm-hmm. think I think Tracy Guns blows away Slash, in my opinion, man. Whoa, now that is an interesting statement, but I'm I'll say, I feel like I have heard a few musician friends of mine say that before. How about that? There's two reasons yeah. why I make that statement. Number one, on on the records that matter by Guns N' Roses, i.e., mm-hmm. you know, the EP that they did, you know, live like a suicide, and then. Uh, welcome to the jungle appetite or, mm-hmm. i'm sorry appetite for destruction uh you know um what's his face there the other guy <laughs> is he straddling is he straddling uh-huh. wrote, he's the guy who wrote those songs as, as far as i know he did write a lot of them he actually did write a lot that and, is true and um, slash is, as a as a solo guitar player in a heavy metal band i just don't think he cuts it man hmm now I'm going to say something also controversial. I absolutely love the very first Velvet Revolver record with okay. him Duff, and uh, what's his name? Just don't have a pilot. Uh, the singer who's Scott going Weiland. Yeah. Scott Weiland. That record is loaded with these really good riffs that either Duff or Slash had to write because they're kind of Guns N' Roses. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if you're telling me that a lot of the bangers were written by Izzy, then I'm thinking maybe Duff wrote a lot of this material. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, man. Duff, Duff <laughs> yes. is like, you know, like, you know, he's like a punk rock guy. Like he's got, yes. he was in like a bunch of punk bands. And... A lot of attitude on, on the first Velvet Revolver record. And it's like, yeah, Duff has, Duff writes songs. He can write songs. So hmm, I have to do some digging on who, who has written what. In that in that whole world, you know, but Tracy Guns is a really good riff writer and songwriter. I back the first three LA Guns records pretty hard, actually, um, up to Hollywood Vampires '91. I think we're blowing a few people's minds here, Mike. I don't think so, man. I, I, I think I'm pretty upfront about my love of that era, man. <laughs> We've got the hardcore and metal people talking about "quote unquote" hair band, but um, the thing is this. Good music is good music, people, and I don't care what kind of music it is. If it's good, is what really matters. Yeah, they're this they're on the short list of those of that era for me because I don't I don't like a lot of that music, but there's like you know like Wasp, you know L.A. Guns, Guns and Roses, you yeah, know maybe yeah. uh, two maybe a couple Motley Crue records, mm-hmm. yeah, and that that's kind of it really. Like I don't I don't fuck around with like Cinderella or you know like uh, Tesla or any of that kind of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we literally could 
devote a whole episode to this, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens when you get musicians talking, talking music before they get into the horror people. This is what happens. And I think this is why you're listening. I think that's why you're sticking around. So uh, we're happy that, that you like the tangents, yeah. uh, the people who do like the tangents. <laughs> well, we haven't actually mentioned the movie we're talking about tonight, so let's... No, uh, we have not, but I think now <laughs> is the time, people. Now, the now time. is the time. <laughs> and we are going to talk about none other than John McNaughton's infamous Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Um, I hesitated to mention a year, because one could say it's 1990's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and you would be right. It came out January 5th, 1990. However, the movie also came out September 24th, 1986 in Chicago uh, and was literally filmed throughout 1985. Mike, what a journey. Absolutely, man. And um, yeah, just to go through some of the uh, credits here, we got directed by John McNaughton and uh, written by Richard Fire and John McNaughton. Mm -hmm. Richard Fire. That's a fucking great name. That is a great name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I got to be honest, man, I know McNaughton, McNaughton is, uh, you know, at this stage, a very accomplished director, but I've only seen Wild Things besides from this film. Wild Things is a good movie. Wow. I have not seen that in ages. Yeah. It's I mean, I, I have to double, double check on his uh, filmography myself. Yeah. I mean, I, he's done a bunch, you know, a bunch of well, well-known films and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, but and, I, and I, I know that he's successful and, you know, but I, I really have, um, I, I haven't seen too many of his movies. Hmm. Yeah, I, I probably would agree with that as well. And, uh, you know, Richard Fire, I don't know what <laughs> else he wrote. Maybe it's a pseudonym now. I mean, that's a real person, I guess. That's yeah. an awesome name, though, man. It is a great name. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this, um, and then, uh, of course, the cast, it's actually really three people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah we got uh, Michael, Michael Rooker, who was un unknown at the time. Yeah. And he plays Henry. And uh, you know, we all know him from Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Walking Dead, uh, Slither, Mall mm -hmm. Rats, like a bunch of like, you know, pretty big, big projects. Great character actor. Great actor. Yeah. Uh, Tom Towles has, uh, well, they call him Otis in the in the movie, but um, we'll get to who he actually supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And um, Tracy Arnold as Becky, which is Otis's sister, and right. th that's besides from like some, uh, you know, some other other miscellaneous extras and background actors. That's that's pretty much the whole uh, the whole cast. Yeah, I mean, some, some prostitutes, and then there's the guy who gets the TV smashed over his head. Yeah. And, you know, the very, very unfortunate family. But, yes, there are primarily three people in the movie. Um, and uh, this, was, this, this was, you know, a rewatch, of course. We, we, I'd seen the movie before. Uh, but it was the first rewatch since, I'm going to say, the early to mid-2000s when I got the, uh, the DVD from Dark Sky back in the day, uh, which I was unable to locate. So I watched it streaming. Um, and wow, I, I just was really kind of taken aback by how much they were able to do with so such little money. Because this is 
this is a low budget film and, and you, you can tell, uh, you know, just by watching it, that they didn't really have a ton of dough. And apparently uh, the budget was, was $110,000. Like, that's wow. insane, man. Yeah. That, that's like the budget for like the coffee for most films, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> like catering one fraction of the catering expense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what they were able to accomplish with, with such so little here. And uh, as I was saying to Mike before we started rolling, uh, to me, what makes this movie so good and so effective are the performances from the three actors, 100%. Um, you know, and particularly Michael Rooker as Henry. Um, I, I would like to say that prior to this film, the serial killer movie thing didn't even exist. Um, I mean, you could go way back to the movie Badlands uh, based on Charles Starkweather. And you had your TV movie fair, uh, you know, uh, about Bundy and about Gacy and, of course, about Charles Manson, Helter Skelter, which is fantastic. Uh, but it was a TV movie. Um, and other just real kind of super independent stuff but nothing that really came to the forefront just yet because serial killers hadn't the, the whole thing hadn't really exploded just yet i think while serial killing had happened and you know gacy was in jail and bundy was in jail i think once the Dahmer thing happened in 91 upon time this was hitting home video i feel like the and i hate using this word the the zeitgeist of the serial killer thing began, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, a couple of things I'd like to add is uh, I think another precursor to this film would, would be uh, In Cold Blood, you know, the, uh, yeah, the film course. that Truman Capote about uh, uh, Perry Smith and, um, you know, Robert Blake played him, who actually turned out yeah. to be a, a real murderer. <laughs> but we're talking about not a lot before this movie at all. Not a, not a lot to go by. Yeah, but, you know, you know in, in Cold Blood, once again, similar to um, Badlands, was like a, 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 contempor like a contemporary for the time kind of regular film with a narrative, and there was like a very mm -hmm. linear kind of storyline. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, it almost seems like a documentary. Yeah, it really does. I mean... Sure, it's it's a linear film and there's a beginning and a middle and an end. But in one way, it's almost like there are things that are kind of just strung together where the viewer is just taking taking on this really dark journey of what a day in the life is like when you are this kind of person. Right. Well, and the other thing that kind of contributed to that was the, you know, very, very sparse uh, film score. Mm. You know, I mean, I remember you were telling me that you bought the score and I was like, mm -hmm. what's what score? I don't remember any music being in this movie. <laughs> minimal. As a matter of fact, um, yeah, I actually just got the Wax Tracks reissue of it because it hadn't been on vinyl since like 90 or since 90 and 91 uh, until this year, uh, because, of course, you know, vinyl has come back. Um, and. To me, what well, I'll always remember about the, that opening theme music is that Malevolent Creation used it on the second album, Retribution, which is one of my favorite death metal albums of all time. So I always, I always remembered that, you know. 
um, that that keyboard intro. And the music, by the way, uh, is by John McNaughton himself, which he probably, again, he had no money. And he just was like, well, let me just fuck around on the keyboard, probably. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's not there's not a lot of music in the movie. Um, it, it reminds me of of uh, our you know our our new buddy who directed Seder. He was not a musician. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The yeah. music for this movie out of necessity. Well, you mentioned a couple of things about this kind of hitting at the right place at the right time because, like, you were saying that you know, like in the '90s, that's when you really like the whole serial killer, like a you know, entry into the consciousness, you know, there'd mm-hmm. be like, answer me, you know, the Jim Goad magazine yeah. came out. Mm-hmm. There was like a cottage industry of uh, true crime books really yep. kicked into gear in the nineties. And this movie was kind of the, I felt like it was the precursor to a lot of that stuff as yeah. well as the precursor to some found footage stuff. Cause there's a portions of this film that we're led to believe were, filmed in a camcorder, their actual footage. Mm-hmm. So there's like that sketchy found footage, snuff film, documentary. Like there are moments when you don't really feel like you're watching a movie. You're watching like a like you found this videotape somewhere and this is what was on it. You know what I mean? Yes. This movie totally has that vibe. And, you know, I, I don't even know if we even said it, but the Henry that this is based on is Henry Lee Lucas, uh, American serial killer, who this movie definitely takes liberties. I mean, apparently Henry Lee Lucas, while was a, you know, murdering scumbag, he was also a compulsive liar and confessed to dozens and dozens of murders that he did not commit. So uh, he definitely, I, I can't really recall how many he was found guilty of, but he actually did commit. But he, there are uh, things that happened in his life that were similar because he he was uh, emotionally, physically, and sexually abused as a child. And apparently, his mother did dress him up. And apparently, his mother was a a prostitute. So we've got we've got all of that going on in this movie, which is uh, revealed uh, as the film goes on. Um, and you know, we we have uh, Tom Towles' Otis uh, to, uh, Otis Tool. That's the last name? Was yeah, I mean, they spell it like Otis, Otis Tool, like O-T-T-I-S. I don't know if you pronounce it Otis, or I, I always pronounce it, pronounce it Otis. Right. Now, the, the, the one thing I recall about that name is that um, way back in the in the early 80s, uh, he was, uh, now I, I'm not 100% sure, I always remembered this factoid, that apparently he was the one who killed Adam Walsh in Florida. Do you ever remember hearing that? Yes, and uh, yep. just a quick uh, bit of info. So, Henry Lee Lucas uh, confessed to 600 murders. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And, and there's actually a really good documentary on Netflix, of course, Netflix, which is like the, you know, the serial killer uh, haven mm-hmm. for these days, about Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool. And um, that's kind of what cops used to do, man. Like whenever they, they caught one of these guys, they would try to just cl- start closing cases. And they would be like, oh, yeah, what about this girl here in West Virginia? Yeah, yeah, that was me. Yeah. That was me. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then they would just close these cases. And then um, they would just, they would find that, like, all of these these murders that Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole uh, confessed to, because they were like a tag team of murder, mm-hmm. he would, ha- would have to have driven thousands of miles every single day without stopping to 
to fill in this timeline of murders. Right. So obviously some of these weren't real. Some of them were false, mm -hmm. uh, you know, false confessions, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm going to check out that documentary on, on Netflix. Uh, yeah. It's like a four parter, you know? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. It's I good definitely one. want to do that. But yeah, apparently uh, Mr. Tool, I mean, is the reason uh, Adam Walsh's father uh, began America's Most Wanted. It was in the wake of the death of his son. And, uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of criminals were caught uh, after his uh, capture as a result of that TV show, America's Most Wanted. Remember? That was a great show. Oh, I used I to watch that. that all the time, definitely. When, when I had access to TVs in the 90s, I used to watch it, that is. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Another another thing too is uh you know hey spoiler alert um the, another difference is that in the film Otis gets uh gets killed in mm -hmm. real life Otis Tool didn't they both went to jail right so mm -hmm. and then also um, you can also see that in the in the um, documentary series that the actual Otis Tool is a little bit more flamboyant than uh, Otis from the movie and. Mm. They Henry and Otis were in fact uh, lovers. So lovers, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, that That's they right. they kind of hint in the film that Otis is uh, not so much gay, but bisexual. Yeah, yes. like, whatever's clever with him. You know, he's just an exciting right. kind of guy. Yeah, anything, you know what I mean? Anything goes. I would yeah. say, including uh, you know his sister and things like that. <laughs> yeah, which is definitely one of the one of the more messed up parts of of this film is is you know, what he uh, does to the sister and treats, how he treats her and talks about her. And definitely one of the most unnerving things going on in this movie, I thought. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing. Becky, played by Tracy Arnold, is literally the only character that you, that is, you kind of, she's down on her luck, you know, she's getting out of a bad yeah. relationship. Uh, mm -hmm. For some fucking reason, she seeks out her brother <laughs> to like move to Chicago. And she's like, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. My, my ex-con uh, brother, uh, you know, never-do-well uh, murderer type of guy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out there and see if I can start a new life in, in the big city. Mm. And yeah. slowly Not we get to idea. realize, you know, and her, and her and Henry have a bond. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, she's starting to have feelings for him, like romantic feelings, and she you know, kind of goes into how she was abused by her father. And then sort of expertly, it's revealed in the film that Otis was also probably a regular abuser of his sister, sexual abuser yeah. of his sister. No, totally, totally. I mean, that's the thing. You, you, you have so much empathy for uh, his sister and... I don't know. There are brief, brief moments where you you don't hate Henry in this movie, right? I mean, maybe even more than brief moments where you're kind of, I mean, you're almost rooting for a killer because he's 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 so not Otis. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, yeah, so, they're they're two diametrically opposite psychopaths. You know, what I mean, like right. like Otis is just like Buck Wild, like em embracing you know, the, the criminal murderer lifestyle, um, you know, selling drugs, you know, 
you know, gaming his whole system with uh, with his parole officer, like that kind of thing. And Henry, you get to see the severe emotional damage with him more than you do with with Otis. You know what I mean? Like you right. see that Henry, maybe under different circumstances, might have turned out to be an okay guy, but he was just so fucked up by his childhood that it's just impossible to to feel anything beyond despair and hatred, you know? I agree 100%. That's a, that's a great take right there. Um, you you do almost see that in Henry and, and what could have been, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I feel like he has a bit more of a code, maybe, although I don't know if I, if I would go that far 100%, you know? Um, like, I feel like Otis would definitely kill a child. He would molest a child, whereas Henry... Is definitely not going that route as in this movie, you know. Uh, any man and woman, of course, adult male, female, you know, is is free game. But I don't know. I felt like he had a semi code here. I don't know why. The the feeling I got from Henry is that it's just it's he has no choice in the matter. You know what I mean? It's like just this is how he manages his life. This is like what all the things that have happened to him in his past have culminated in this sort of expression. And he just has to murder people. Yeah. He's not a thrill killer. Otis seems like he's getting his jollies and thrills out of it. Henry is more haunted and like it's scary. It's almost scarier, right? It's way scarier because he has absolutely no remorse or no feelings about it where Otis, uh, cause there's a scene in the film after they have an argument because uh, Otis tries to kiss his sister, <laughs> uh, she's like, why don't you guys go out and get a beer? So they go out and get a beer, which involves, uh, you know, securing the services of two uh, prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're both getting their dicks sucked in the car. And uh, they, they kill the prostitutes. And you can tell that, after they kill the prostitutes and throw them out on the, in this alleyway, Henry's like eating a burger and fries. Like to him, it was just like another day in, in his life. Yeah. Otis or Otis is, is kind of shaken up by the whole thing. And he asks him, he's like, what have you never killed anyone before? Right. I think Otis, I think was just a pervert creep molester. I don't know. Well, at least for this, for this story's sake, not maybe in real life of, of who he was as a real person. For this story's sake, I'm going to say that that probably was one of the first times he did that, and that Henry was obviously the seasoned veteran. Yeah. You know? Well, let's just yeah, let's let's stick to this narrative because it definitely departs from the true. Well, true. Who knows if it's even true? Like the actual <laughs> reported stories on these two guys. You know. Right. So yeah, he's like, "How oh, you never killed anyone before?" And he's like, "I had to do, you know, what I had to do, or something like that." You know, right, and, right, something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, but that is when he develops like a real taste for murder and this, you know, the sexual aspects of it and sexual gratification and and just perversion, you know? Yeah, and there's the scene where, you know, uh, he tries to, you know, uh, hook up with the high school guy who buys weed from him, so to speak, putting it mildly. <laughs> and the guy, the high school kid punches him right in the face and he gets out of the car and he gets home and he says, I, I just want to kill somebody. And he, Henry says, say that again. I, I could just kill somebody. So they go out and randomly gun down some poor guy on the highway. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Henry, look, I mean, he's, he's, he's not the lighter guy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I just feel like, I don't know. There were just, there are brief moments early on in the movie where you're not hating Henry, but you're definitely, you're definitely not rooting for him as this movie goes on at all. I mean, you're not rooting for either of these two guys. The only person you have anything for is the sister, in my opinion. What, one of the most telling sequences in the film is actually the opening scene is like when he's in a diner eating like, mm-hmm. you know, like a, you know, ham and eggs or whatever, some, some like working man style diner breakfast. Right. And then he, he goes to settle his bill and he's like, you know, asked the, the, the lady behind the counter to get him a pack of cools. And he's like, you know, you got you got a beautiful smile or something like that to the to the yeah, girl. Like just he is the he is like a, a predator, like a real a real predator, you know. But, but but the thing that struck me was like how polite he was, and right. But and you're right. thinking you're like, is he like sizing her up to kill her at some point, mm. or is he just a polite being polite or what? And mm. the fact that Henry and Otis, they just look like guys that would work in construction or something like that, you know? Yeah. They just look like regular working guys you just would see, like, on a job site somewhere. And uh, yeah. and they yeah. just... And that's that's the scariest part about it. They don't look like maniacs. It's funny. I, I realized something um, about how we, how we said that this movie helped kind of kick serial killers into the culture. Um this movie might have gotten a, a late 1990, early 1991 uh, home video release. But what came out in the beginning of 91 in theaters? Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Silence of the Lambs also really puts serial killers and crime, true crime right out to the forefront. As a matter of fact, I've read a bunch of articles. And even Brian Keene himself said that in the 80s, like it was all about the words horror on the spine of, of the, you know, every kind of like horror book, even horror books that dealt with killers or even serial killers, it's been horror. But Silence of the Lambs changed everything so much that the words true crime like replaced horror for a while, you know? And the serial killers in, the, in that world and in those movies are actually miles away from these two working men. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 totally. They're miles away. You have Hannibal, who is a very, like, this cultured, (laughs) super smart guy. And then you have Buffalo Bill, who, you know, unfortunately in 1991 is representing transsexuals in a very negative light. Like, they're just, you know, miles and miles away from two guys on a construction site. But I feel like they're both super important movies of their time. Uh, that brought this whole serial killer thing out there to the people. Well, I didn't, I didn't think of that before. Yeah, well, you know, we kind of hit on it though, where it's like this movie was made in the '80s, so it was made mm-hmm. kind of on the heels of uh, of slasher films. Right. Yeah. These guys are not slashers; they're real guys that could be standing next to you online somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be the guy that's pumping gas and you know in your car. You know, or the guy that's following you out to to your car after you finish eating your meal at a diner at midnight somewhere. Yeah, and I, totally I wonder, undetected, no mask, no nothing. Mm, 
it's scary. super scary that way. I mean, you know what's also interesting? I wonder what the the conversations were between '86 and '90 between John McNaughton and all of the movie studios, and he, like as he's trying to get this movie out. I mean, I, I bet people were just some of them were just like appalled, right? I mean, <laughs> or just like astounded by it, you know? Because it was ahead of its time, I think. Yeah, you know, and then like later on in the 90s, I mean, honestly, in my opinion, that is, there wouldn't be like a Natural Born Killers or a California or a Seven no. or any of those films without Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. I agree 100%. And it just it just goes to show you how, how sometimes things can just take time. Uh, movies, music, any, you know, uh, eventually things find their way. And Look, this movie is, is not for everybody. There's the, the one scene in particular that would probably turn a lot of stomachs, which is the quote unquote, you know, found footagey kind of scene where they're they're watching the two of them uh, kind of uh, raping and murdering a husband, wife, and then the young teenage boy who walks in on all of it. Um, that is, you know, probably not for every listener we have. Um, but that scene brought to mind clockwork orange for me mike sure absolutely man did you think about that at all <laughs> yeah a hundred percent man that totally was what, what i thought about too and um yeah it's like it's like i said the first time i saw this i didn't know who any of the actors were i'd never seen michael rooker in a movie before i was like is he the fucking really a killer you know this looks like <laughs> yeah, like this yeah. looks like so realistic to me and those like videotaped scenes like I was like disturbed and chilled when I saw this movie and mm, it made me feel, I felt vulnerable like all the time after I watched that film, you know? Totally. I mean, and again, it's, it's coming. It's like, you know, the eighties are over the, the big horror boom is over. And then you got this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, wow, this is quite a departure from Freddie, Michael and Jason, you know? And it's just, like the nineties have arrived. I just looked something up right now. 1991 is also the year that the first issue of Answer Me magazine came out. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, it all kind of lines up. Um, and I'm sure uh, what's the, the Adam Parfrey books were being kind of written around back then, too. It's just all this weird kind of counterculture shit was happening. And, and if you're of a certain age, you can you, you remember some of this, you know, like there were serial killer zines, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there was like a, a whole issue devoted to serial killers. There was a, a whole issue desert, devoted to rape. There yeah, was, unbelievable. Yeah, there was, was like articles about Nambla and stuff like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's yeah. uh, that was in the serial murder issue, I believe. But um, yeah, it's, it's uh, the darkening, I would say, like the deeper exploration of the dark side. And uh, this is my recollections of the 90s. You know what I mean? It's like some people think about grunge and Nirvana and all that stuff. I think about like Answer Me magazine, serial killers, mm. you know, like, uh, you know, that kind of stuff is really what was in front of me a little bit, too. Because like also like in the early to mid 90s is when I first started really traveling across the country on tour and going mm -hmm. to places like the Midwest. You know what I mean? And after having seen Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, I'm in a van driving across Illinois, uh, getting out to, you know, get, get uh, you know, get like a late night meal with a bunch of the guys in the band at like, you know, some roadside spot, 
off the highway and I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to stick to the, to the light here. I'm not going to go into the shadows too much because who knows what's out there, you know? And it's oh, like, yeah. I just remember the world being a different place to you back then as well. Like if you're traveling like that, you know, no phones, you, you could literally disappear. And like all of us, we were like four guys in a van. We could have all been killed and no one would even know for like weeks probably, you know? 100%. I mean, I've always said this. Two things have made serial killing quite hard to do in the modern world. Number one is cell phones. Yeah. And number two is security cameras. Yep. I would add a third would be the, the how, how far DNA evidence is, has, you know, I mean, there was DNA evidence in the late eighties, of course, and early nineties, but it is much, there's, it's much better now. You know what I'm saying? Forensics are teams are, are way more skilled now than they've ever been. Um, but if you go back 30 years, I mean, yeah, it's, it was, <laughs> You could, you, it was easier to, to do these horrific, disgusting things, you know, let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and there was no, um, you know, uh, like a kayak or any of those like apps where you could book hotels. Nope. So Nothing. we we literally <laughs> stayed at the, if we had a hotel at all, we literally stayed at the cheapest motel you can find, or we slept in the van at a truck stop. And it was like, yeah, I've done that before. I've yeah. done that a few times. Yeah. It's, and, and you think back and that's probably not that smart. Ah, it's fucking scary, man. And you know, and the, the, you're sitting in the van, you're thinking about Henry Lee Lucas and all these psychopaths out there. <laughs> you're in the Midwest where all this shit happens, you know, and it's like real spooky, you know? Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, yeah, I think this is a, a very important film. I mean, it was really well reviewed once it got out there. And was released, I mean, like New York Times and, and uh, Ebert and a, a lot of, you know, marquee uh, places and publications gave this a good review. And, and I think it was definitely warranted. Um, but again, is the movie for everybody? I mean, I don't know what some people would even think of it through modern eyes. I mean, there are even some people out there that would probably be like, ah, this movie isn't even, you know, whatever, or it's kind of slow or blah, blah, blah. But, I don't know. I, I think it's a classic. Well, you know, any any of you uh, guys in the younger set out there who haven't seen this movie, please watch it and let us know what you think of it. I'd, I'd be interested to see generally, generationally how this mm -hmm. might have aged over the years. Because for me, it was like incredible impact on the way I saw the world, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely... I, I agree 100% on what you were saying about with things of traveling and just how you viewed certain people and places but i think it's it's importance in horror is a bit understated and, and i'm glad that you know it's gotten some nice uh reissues and some accolades too over the years you know um so we're definitely not alone in thinking that it's an important movie a couple things about uh about uh, michael rooker so according to mcnaughton when they were casting the film Rooker showed up in character to audition for the role of Henry Lee Lucas or Henry, whatever you just want to call him, Henry. And uh, McNaughton was like, wow, I hope this guy's acting. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, the same thing, the Dickies, the, the, the work shoes, you know, the Carhartt jacket, the whole getup. You know, he just showed up as Henry or his interpretation like, of the character. Uh, like David Hess style when he tried to, when he auditioned for Last House on the Left. Yes. He, he came kind of like real, you know, 
heavy and intimidating. And yeah, that's interesting. Also, I want to, I'm sorry, go ahead, I what were you going to say? Similarity there. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I see a, a slight similarity to uh, like David Hess and, and Michael Rooker, you know, um, whereas, you know, kind of like debut films playing these really dark roles, these really heavy guys with very, you know, noticeable facial characteristics and all that. I, I thought about Hill as I was, uh, uh, Hess, I'm sorry. As I was watching uh, this movie, David has. Yeah, Krug. Yep. <laughs> I think that he looks like Freddie Madball actually quite a bit. David Hess. Really? Yeah. No. Yeah, he's got that same kind of face. I think. I don't know. You know, Freddie's got long <laughs> hair now and stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, he Freddie definitely looks different from from back in the day. But uh, I mean, his voice too. I feel like Michael Rooker's voice. You, you, you know it's him. You have your eyes closed. You know it's Mike. He has that very kind of scratchy voice, and I, I remember him in my Clerks, and yeah, you know all, all of his other roles have come to mind. The, the other thing to keep in mind too, which I thought was really funny, like looking back on it, like uh, this was filmed in eighty five, eighty six, somewhere around there. They the the t characters of Otis and Henry were uh, at least ten years ahead of the you know, mid nineties, uh, you know, style of far of dressing, you know what I mean? Like Carhartts, <laughs> you know, like Dickie pants, uh, Otis had like the trucker hat, you know, with the mesh. it's like, Mike, were they hipsters? Are they you were, saying they were early hipsters? They were Very fucking early. early hipsters, man. <laughs> Cause I, I remember watching this the last time I watched it just now, I was, I was scoping out like Henry's wardrobe and he had like Dickie's, white socks, some kind of like uh wear guard, like, like work shoes and like, and a Carhartt jacket. And I'm like, that's exactly how I used to dress in 1995. That was, no, yeah, that was a definite nineties look. And it was 10 years prior. <laughs> obviously it came from working the working man, obviously. Mm -hmm. but, wow. Oh, that is kind of interesting. You, you could have almost plopped the two of them physically into a 1996 movie instead of an 86 movie, right? Yeah, no, yeah. definitely, man. They all look like dudes who would go see like Unsane and the Melvins play in like 1995. <laughs> you're right. You're not wrong. I mean, shit. <laughs> yeah. So what would you give Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer on a Dude, scale of one to five? Without any hesitation, I give it a five. Ah. I... I'm giving it a four and a half. Okay. It's amazing. Great movie. Love it. I just don't know if it's a five-star movie. It's an important movie. I give it a four and a half, you know, with a bullet. Uh, I don't know if it's a five-star movie for me, um, but it is a must-see movie, uh, and it is a great movie. Yeah, dude. I, I, It's one of the most important films for me that I've ever seen, actually, just because of the way, like, maybe the time of my life that I saw it and how it molded my worldview and all that kind of stuff. So totally, man. I mean, yeah. And it, it, this would be an interesting double feature with, with silence of the lambs, because I do think it's two of the most important nineties horror movies ever. Um, but it's weird though, because hard dried up not far after these movies, even though these movies were so good, you know, Oh man, the '90s for American horror was hard times, man. It really was. 
as we've said many times on the show, and I know some people will debate us and say, no, but this and this, and what about this? And what about that? What about that? Of course, there are some good movies. But I think once you get into like the nitty gritty mid 90s, the mid 90s was, I mean, ooh, you know, <laughs> for a lot of things and a lot of music and even music, movie, it was just kind of this weird time. The mid 90s was weird. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I can't even think of an American film that came out in the mid nineties that, that I thought, I mean, you know, we got the early nineties, which you know, silence of the lambs and you know, this movie, but I, I always go back to the only film I really dug from, uh, you know, from the mid nineties, mid to late nineties was late 90s. Uh, event, event horizon. Event horizon. Yeah. It is a great movie. Yeah. Totally. Um, I don't know. And obviously as we've mentioned on a, on a few episodes past that I feel like, Horror had to go. Horror had to go through its screams, and I know what you did last summer's, in order to get to the explosion that did happen in the O's and the French explosion. And I, thankfully, I feel like we it's been on a very nice near twenty year run. I mean, one could argue, right, or, or at least a fifteen year run of 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 solid horror in America. Although this year, for me, this year has been a bit uneven. And I think that was, a, uh, you know, fodder for an, another episode. Um, I feel like I'm just, I'm just wanting to watch old movies this year, but it's, that's just me. I don't know about you, Mike. Well, you know, we got to remember that we, uh, we got Seder this year. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's been definitely some bright spots. But I think that uh, what we're falling victim to is uh, the woke horror. And that's mm -hmm. kind of uh, suppressing uh, more free thought in the horror genre, I think. And I think we're also falling victim to there's so much out there. Yeah, <laughs> like there's, there's a lot, yeah. <laughs> the content, the lack of theatrical, the lack of a student, like the lack of you know, the lack of there really being a chance to really shine a light on something. Psycho Gorman is, is an example of kind of like they got the right people and the right push, the right people behind it, the right this, the right that, and it's got eyes on it, and it's ended, it ended up on Shutter. but even before it ended up on Shutter, it had all the eyes on it, blah, blah, blah. Um, Seder is still a very small movie. We're championing it. Other people are championing it, you know? Um and then I feel like later this year, the new Halloween is going to be like the big home run. I yeah. don't know about you. I think oh, yeah. it is. Definitely. Um, and I think Terrifier 2 is also going to be the other big home run this year. But other than that, well, I don't know. I'm watching a lot of old shit. Speaking of movies that aren't for everybody, <laughs> the Terrifier <laughs> movies are definitely not for everyone, man, especially these days. But man, it's got a lot of love, though. I think it's got a lot of love and it's got a lot of excitement about the next one. I, I just saw the trailer for the next one. Yeah. <laughs> it looks really fucked up. So, you know. I want to say uh, that Brandon has uh, the guy who plays Art the Clown as uh, one of his uh, upcoming guests. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and then I saw that one of those precursor Art the Clown uh, movies is streaming. Uh, the, the Halloween one, the Tales of Halloween, it's like, or one or two of them are now streaming, like the, like the ones where you can see his earlier appearances, which were not as easy to come by. Oh yeah, I've seen those actually a while ago. Um, like it's called like All Hallows Eve or something like that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I think those are those are a little bit easier to find. There's like two of them, I think. Yeah, it's uh, the art, the clown uh, parts are are pretty awesome actually, and 
quite scary. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about that. I mean, you know, we, we, we love the hell out of the, the, you know, the Halloween from two years ago here on the show. And what is it, three years ago? No, I think it's two years ago, right? I think so. Um, <laughs> losing track of time due to the fucking pandemic. But I'm definitely looking forward to those. But, you know, we like talking about uh, the older flicks here, too, on the show. And, you know, it, it's fun to talk about movies that say you haven't seen in like 10 or 15 years and you're watching with 2021 eyes. Right, Mike? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and this one held up, man. And it, it made me uncomfortable, just like I did the first time around. <laughs> Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, I was like... We, uh, we, hope, uh, <laughs> we hope you all enjoyed this trip to 1990 via 1986 with Henry Porcher, a serial killer. As Mike said, if you've never seen it, please, please check it out and let us know what you think of it. Yeah, I, I remember watching that movie at night um, and then I'm like, oh shit, man, I left something in the in the car and I'm like looking out the window. I'm like, is there anyone out there? You know, like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh, I, the car is only literally like 10 feet from my, the front, front door. But I'm like, oh, is there, I think I see someone in the bushes, you know, like in the darkness mm -hmm. out there. I don't know. So yeah, that, yeah. it has that, that, that kind of effect on you, you know, Re real life boogeyman. I mean, you know, that, that's kind of what serial kills are and what they were. And, and I think that's why people are so fascinated by them. I agree. All righty. We will see you all next time, everybody. And again, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to, to the Necromaniacs podcast. And check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Necromaniacs podcast. Leave some comments, hit the like buttons, and we will see, uh, we will see you next time. Take care, everyone. Cheers.
it's over the shoulder. Use them a while and it's over the shoulder. Use them a while and it's over the shoulder.